Welcome to the latest episode of Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet with your esteemed hosts, Dr. Stacy Adler of the Mono County Office of Education and Mr. Christopher Platt of the Mono County Free Library. Welcome, listeners, to another episode of the Oxygen Star podcast, where we bring you your adventures, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet. I'm Stacy, And I'm Christopher. And with us, as always, is our producer, Doug. Hey, Doug. Hey, folks. How's it going? Happy Friday. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> and we're going to have some nice week, some nice weather finally. Yeah, spring is here, or at least I'll say that with uh, well, knock on wood. <laughs> we just put the snowblower at the library away this morning, so we know oh. we're jinxing it. Oh, yeah. well, there. Okay, so I know who to blame if if things go south, right? Right, right. Well, I will tell you and, and let our listeners know, of course, we record these in advance and tomorrow is Fishmas. So Happy I Fishmas. Pa- yeah, I passed so many people towing fishing boats up 395 this morning. It was great to see. Oh, well, yesterday when I was pulling onto 395 from my house to go to work, the line of campers and boats and cars to get into Crowley Lake was, it was almost all the way backed up to the, um, the freeway exit, you know, <laughs> like great. it was all the way down. It was really neat. It was funny. Then I asked Tessa this morning, my daughter, did you see all the cars yesterday? She's like, yeah, I almost called you to say, what's happening? What's the matter? I'm like, tomorrow's <laughs> the fishing opener. She's like, oh, yeah. <laughs> Which is the summertime equivalent of the ski opener. So Exactly. Yeah. It's yeah. officially changing the seasons now. That's how we do it here, right? It's, it it's the ski is the opening of the mountain and the opening of fishing season. <laughs> well, that's also why we live here. So that's great. That's right. That's right. So, so we're going to talk about what we're reading now. Yeah. What's, what's on going our currently? Table? Yeah. yeah. So, Christopher, why don't you kick us off? Okie dokie. So I'm reading uh, a couple of different books that just came out and I finished one. So I'll talk about that one first and then I'll briefly touch on the other. They're very different. The first one is um, a collection of poetry by Ocean Vuong. I'm not a poetry person. I occasionally read it, but you know, I'm not a regular reader of it. So I don't really consider myself an expert, but Ocean Vuong is a young poet who won a lot of attention and awards with his first collection of poetry that came out a few years ago. And then he really broke out and came to my attention with his novel quasi memoir on earth. We're briefly gorgeous two years ago. It's this small word of mouth book that garnered incredible mm-hmm. feedback and attention, you know, from more than just the poetry world. People didn't had never heard of this guy. And then there's this small, small lyrical um, novel that came out, and suddenly everyone's reading him. He is Vietnamese American. His grandfather was an American soldier. So he was born in Vietnam, but he and his mother spent some time there and then ended up in a refugee camp in the Philippines before finally coming to the States. So he's really got some experience under his belt, even though he's still rather young. So this new book is called Time as a Mother, and it is actually inspired by the death of his own mother, who died mm. fairly young. So, um, 
you can kind of anticipate what it's about. It's written in his usual lyrical style, but he's also a poet who's very unflinching in dealing with the themes of grief and despair and longing and addiction and ultimately survival. So, um, you know, it's really short. I can't really go into a whole lot more of it, but I did (laughs) want to read a really quick poem just so our listeners can get an idea of just what he writes about. So this is... Is that okay? Yeah, (laughs) go for it. I'm not just filling air here. This is a really great (laughs) poem. This the the title of this poem is called "The Last Prom Queen in Antarctica," and here we go. It's true I'm all talk in a French tuck, but so what? Like the wind, I ride my own life. Neon light electric in the wet part of roadkill on the street where I cut my teeth on the good sin. I want to take care of our planet because I need a beautiful graveyard. It's true I'm not a rider, but a faucet underwater. When the flood comes, I'll raise my hand so they know who to shoot. The sky flashes, the sea yearns. I myself am hell. Everyone's here. Sometimes I go to parties just to dangle my feet out of high windows among people. This boy crying in his car after his shift at McDonald's on Easter Sunday. The way he wipes his eyes with his shirt as the big trucks blare off the interstate. My favorite kind of darkness is the one inside us, I want to tell him. And I like the way your apron makes it look like you're ready for war. I too am ready for war. Give another chance. I'd pick life where I play the piano in a room with no roof. Broken keys, Bach sonata-like footsteps fast down the stairs as my father chases my mother through New England's endless leaves. Maybe I saw a boy in a black apron crying in a Nissan the size of a monster's coffin and knew I could never be straight. Maybe like you, I was one of those people who loves the world most when I'm rock bottom in my fast car going nowhere. So Wow. Yeah, right. Wow. There's a lot to unpack in this poem. Yeah, you know, hearing, listening to something like that makes me wish I had taken some kind of poetry class, you know, in undergrad rather than just taking all the, you know, American literature, fiction right. types of classes that I took because I don't even know what to do with that. You know, <laughs> well, I mean, yeah. I don't I don't even know how to begin unpacking something like that. And I think that's why people he's resonating with so many people is because it is kind of unexpected in a way. Um and again, like you and I aren't experts in poets and poetry. So there there's probably a ton of poets out there who Right, similar to this, but to me, just the imagery of like, you know, a McDonald's after mm-hmm. it's closing off just off an interstate, you know, and it's kind of the dead end area, and yet there's something still poetic about it. And, um, you know, the other poems in this collection are all rather different. Each one kind mm-hmm. of attacks something different, but, um, you know, none of them are all that terribly uplifting. <laughs> They're just dealing with, you know, obviously, you know, it's a reflection of Tough what he issue. was going through. Yeah, exactly. So that's my first book, Time is a okay. Mother by Ocean Vuong. I know many of our listeners are reading it too, because I've heard from people so far, and we do have a copy in the library. Um, the other book I literally just picked up this week, I was reading something else and I put it aside. So I'm telling you guys about it today. I'm not even finished with it yet, but I'm already learning so much from it. It's called um, Deaf Utopia, a memoir and a love letter to a way of life by Niall DiMarco and Robert Siebert. So <laughs> I really know nothing about Niall DiMarco. I don't watch Dancing with the Stars or <laughs> um, America's Next Top no- mo- Model. I'm not like one of those reality TV show watchers. Mm-hmm. I'm sure a lot of our listeners know who I'm talking about already. Um, 
so I really became more familiar with him because he is kind of using that celebrity. He's deaf and he's using that celebrity to promote deaf causes and deaf culture. And he started a production company apparently that produced a reality series on Netflix called Deaf You that follows a number of students at Day University, which is a well-known university for the deaf and hard of hearing. It's a lot of, especially educators like you, Stacey, you know about this mm-hmm. already. Yeah. It's really well known. He followed that up with a short documentary called Audible, and it's about a student athlete at Maryland School for the Deaf, and it was nominated for an Oscar last year. That's really where I first heard about him. Um, it didn't win the Oscar, but it just occurred to me, like, here's this short that's nominated for an Oscar, and mm-hmm. then that movie um, that won Coda. the best picture. Coda. Yeah. Thank you. Which mm-hmm. I still haven't seen, but now I'm no, really, No, I haven't really, either. Well, we'll have to watch it together we, sometime. We should. <laughs> um, <laughs> because it just, it struck me that there were two things nominated for Oscars that had to deal with deaf people mm-hmm. the same year. So it's kind of like, if there's some new visibility to it. And so then he very quickly followed it up with this memoir. Um, uh, and it's clearly, you know, from the from the subtitle, you know, he's talking about a way of life. He's really trying to get more people to understand that being deaf isn't just a disability or an issue that you're, you're living with. It's actually a culture um, that a lot of people aren't aware of. So, um, I'm not done reading and I'm still in the early years. He's still in grade school, (laughs) but I am learning something new every other page. And I'll just shout out a couple of things. One is, um, you know, he, he's a young man. He's in his, thirties. Um, it looks like from this photo. Um, so he was going to school in the 1990s as a, as a, in his grade school. And he is from an all deaf family. His parents and his two siblings are all deaf. So he grew up in this kind of rich deaf culture to begin with, because that's Mm -hmm. what his home life is. And then, you know, he went to the same school that his parents went to Lexington school for the deaf in New York City, which again I was aware of, but never really fully understood. And it, you know, it was a very well old, old and very well known school for the deaf. But it was still in the '90s staffed by hearing people. The administrators yeah. and the teachers were all hearing. And you know, the the method at that time was still kind of old school, and that that was that the best way to for deaf people to learn and to get it by in society was to lip read, and if possible, use hearing aids. So the students were required to learn lip reading as well as some American Sign Language, which is the main language for uh, deaf people in the United States, as well as wear their hearing aids at all times. Mm-hmm. Well, that's three different ways of communicating. And imagine you're a seven-year-old and you're trying to watch your your teacher who isn't naturally deaf, right? So they're speaking so that you can lip read but then also trying to sign and they only sign every few words because no one ever does it perfectly. Um, and then you're wearing this device that's making weird noises in, in your skull and, and that's really distracting. So he would pretend to forget his, his hearing aid at home <laughs> repeatedly. And his teachers thought it was because he didn't want to learn, but the truth was he did want to learn. It was doing so allowed him to focus on just two of those things he had to monitor. Right. And, you know, and he points out that even the best lip reading only picks up 30% of the words. So, you know, there's a challenge there. And then the other thing that I picked up out of this was American Sign Language, which is a really rich language of its own. It involves, you know, not just signing with your hands, but body movements and facial expressions is, um, you know, at least the way he presents it so far, the, the default way that the deaf 
community really communicates with itself, right? Mm-hmm. It's just like us talking right now. We can convey tone. We can convey meaning. Um, right. You know, it's just all through movement. Um, but yeah, that wasn't even still just 20 years ago, it wasn't really well understood. And so it wasn't encouraged at school. And in fact, if you were caught using ASL, like in the hallway or something, you'd kind of get punished for it. Mm-hmm. So, and he talks about how they would go, they would, you know, sit in class, trying to lip read, trying to watch the signs, trying to deal with their hearing aids. And then they'd go, you know, leave school and on the way home, everyone's signing, right? There's right. defaults to ASL because yeah. they can have a real conversation. Yeah. Then. And, um, you know, I just thought that was, that was really powerful. It's like teaching left-handed people to force them to write with their right hand when we were growing up, you know? Yes. I, I know what that's like. <laughs> <laughs> so the last thing I'll say just from this section is his mom was deaf, you know, his whole family's deaf. Right. Um, and she was a very active parent. And so she helped force some change at the school and that, and even, and then they ended up moving away to a better mm-hmm. school in Texas. Um, but even now, um, change has occurred. There's now deaf, uh, administrators and teachers at this school. Yeah. So it's just, it's changed. It's gotten much better. I'm still learning about this. I think it's a rich culture to learn about, um, and just understand. I haven't gotten to any other reality TV parts yet. I don't know if I'll just skim <laughs> over those. I mean, it's better than I thought it would be already. So maybe he's going to make a really compelling reason. I mean, he did win dancing for the stars or dancing with the stars or whatever it's called, even though he's deaf. So, wow. Um, <laughs> I, well, you know, yeah. I mean, that's got it. That had to be a difficult experience for him. I'll be anxious to see what you find out about that because not being able to hear the music, but only being able to feel the vibrations to determine what the rhythm is and right. all of that must've been really difficult. Yeah, I, I, I can't imagine. And, you know, we were talking about this when I, when I saw the book in your office the other day, and you were telling me about him getting in all those inputs. I mean, mm-hmm. I I can't even I can't handle it when two people are talking to me at once. You know, like when I, when I'm on the phone having a conversation and my kid wants something. You right. know, you know how that that is. It's so much input coming at you, and in his case, you know, three different types of inputs right. all coming at once had to just be a nightmare for him. Well, in, in that conversation, you were referencing someone around their cochlear implants, yeah, um, and, which is a device that you can kind of, I, I think it's magnetic. You kind of attach it yeah. to an implant and it helps you hear right. um, if you're deaf or, have, or hard of hearing. But I think you said this person would sometimes take the device off just to have right. some downtime. Just to have a, a hearing break, you know. Um, I love I that notion. That was, isn't that amazing? <laughs> Can I have a hearing break sometimes? I was just like, that's, that's, you know, and those are the things that we wouldn't as hearing people think. I think his point here is that we make a lot of default assumptions about what's best for people. Mm-hmm. And sometimes those assumptions aren't fully clear or correct. Yeah, so absolutely. So those are my books. What's on your bedside table, Stace? Well, okay. So I have two to talk about as well. Um, they're both fiction Uh, The first one is a recently, like, just hot off the, almost hot off the presses. It was published in March 
of 2022. Awesome. Um, and it's called the club and it's by Ellery Lloyd. This was, came to my attention because it was a Reese Witherspoon book pick. And I mm-hmm. saw her introducing it on TikTok. Of course, you know, shout out to TikTok. I, love I get all my, TikTok. I get all my good book recommendations from TikTok. <laughs> <laughs> love it kind of embarrassed to say that kind of not um now you're with it anyways the ellery lloyd interestingly enough is a pseudonym for a married couple oh really right together and this is their um second big published book the Mm -hmm. um I think the other one that they published was called People Like Her or something similar to that. But um, they are from the UK. Mm -hmm. And so this book, The Club, is is centered in England. And all the characters are are British. British. Um, So it tells a story. The Club is this exclusive group of... Kind of, I want to say kind of like vacation spots, like, you know, but, but not vacation because they could be accessed like for a weekend or, you know, when for, for many weeks at a time, if, if that's what the, the purse individual needs. Okay. And they're, they're kind of all over the world. There's one in Manhattan. There's one, there's several in different parts of, of the UK you know, there's one in a tropical area. They're, right. they're all, they're all over and they are run by two brothers and okay. Ned groom is the, the brother that has the most authority. And so he inherited these homes. <laughs> it's called the home is the home group is okay. the name of all of these. So it's like the Manhattan home and the, the cottage home and the, you know, okay. the, and so, so they're about to open, Ned is about to open the island home. And it's this, it's not a tropical island. It's an island off the coast of England that is only accessible by a bridge that is only accessible during the times of the day when the tide is down. <laughs> okay, this sounds Agatha Christie already. It is, it's, it very much has Agatha Christie notes. In fact, okay. my my family, we all just watched Death on the Nile, uh, the movie, the new movie version mm-hmm. that just came out. And it really, it had a little bit of that kind of vibe to it, you know? Yeah. So Ned has, has a brother named Adam who is... He hasn't has a share of ownership in the club, but he's not a majority owner. And Ned kind of makes him do all the dirty work. Okay. And and um, Adam's um, wife Laura really wants him to get out. Okay. So Adam goes over to this opening of the island home, and they're kind of doing a soft opening. Mm-hmm. Right. So they've invited certain members of the home group to come and attend this fabulous weekend opening. And this is when Adam is going to tell Ned that he's he's done. Well, as you can imagine, the people all gather. There's all you you know, you learn all this background and history and then people start to die. Of course. <laughs> and that's all I can say, because I don't want to give up any spoilers. So um, it is, 
it started slow. Yeah. And then once I got about 75-ish pages in, I didn't want to put it down. Like I wanted to finish. I wanted to, well, what's going to happen? That's good. (laughs) That's awesome. And then I will say at one point, there were so many people that had died. I had to go back and remember who died. Who was still alive? How how did they die? (laughs) (laughs) So I could like keep track of it all. But it was, it was great. It was really good. And there's some really good characters in it. And they, this couple, they know how to tell a good story. So, so there's this kind of, you know, I'm joking, this yes. Agatha Christie-esque kind mm-hmm. of note to this book. You're on a, yeah. a secluded island at this point with some very important people and people start dying. Right. But you referred to this kind of family dynamic and between the two brothers and one wanting out. And all I can think of is that show Succession, where it's all about family, you know. Is there a, is there kind of a note of that in there too? Yeah, there there definitely is, you know. Yeah. And, and, you know, the jealous dynamics that play out. And, right. you know, and then there's all of these, the ways that all the, like that the upper management people mm-hmm. of the home club are all kind of tied in to each other in one way or another and how they interface with the guests that are mm-hmm. there. It's, I can't, I can't even imagine if they diagram this story, like before <laughs> they wrote it, like outlined it. Um, I, I don't even know how they would, how they, they did that. But, um, you know, there, it also, sorry to interrupt. Mm-hmm. It also just kind of reminds me of that show white Lotus that was on, was it Netflix or HBO last year? It was about yes. that resort thing. It was all yeah. these rich people. And I can't remember if someone died, but it just, it just seemed to have, you know, that it, kind of scheming dynamic to it. It kind of has a little bit of that flavor, but this is not like a, like I said, it's not a tropical yeah, island. Yeah, yeah. So I wouldn't have connected to that like right away. But in terms of the interplay between the people who work for the home group and the guests, mm-hmm. it, it kind of has that kind of feeling to okay. it as, as well. And um, it, this probably would make a good movie, but I think it'd have to be like maybe one of those like extended, you know, like over time. Yeah. yeah. Like a, a mini series. I don't know. Mini series. Yeah. Any, yeah. But that kind of thing. So, awesome. so that was a lot of fun to read. And then the other book that I read is an older book. It was published in December of 2018, and I, again, embarrassed to say, her, it got so much publicity on TikTok that I had to read it. So, <laughs> so it, this is Ver- Verity, V-E-R-I-T-Y, by Colleen Hoover. Now, Colleen Hoover is basically a, is mostly a young adult or like a romance novelist. Okay. You know, she writes young adult fiction and, and kind of the, of the romancey genre. Mm-hmm. This is not romance. And I would not let a young adult read this book. Because it, <laughs> it was spicy. So <laughs> okay. um, not expecting that at all. And so, um, and Colleen Hoover, she is like blowing up because of TikTok. Because her books are, they're all these, so there are these book talk people, book okay. talk people 
and they are booksellers, you know, they're from independent mm-hmm. bookstores or they're off their authors themselves or, you know, whatever literature professors. Mm-hmm. And they do these things of, you know, these are the five best books I'm reading now. And Colleen Hoover's books are almost always in that list. On, on their list. So anyhow, so Verity is an older book that's had this resurgence. And so this is also a suspense kind not really a mystery, but definitely suspenseful and twisted. Really? Oh my God. So I want to read another one of her books to see, like, is she real? Is there something wrong with this? This is like, how can you come up with this? It's so twisted. Okay. But it's about this young girl. Her name is Lowen Ashley. Okay. And she is, she is a, she has published one novel herself and she is sought out by her publisher to complete a series of books that another author had begun and was, it was very popular. Uh And then that author had a catastrophic accident. Okay. So they want to bring her in to ghostwrite. The rest of this series, the three books in the series. And so Verity Crawford is the author who's had this catastrophic injury. Mm -hmm. And so her husband invites Lowen to move into their home and, um, you know, kind of go through all of Verity's notes and make sure her, she's read her you know, the, the published novel and, and mm-hmm. just really get a feel for who she is so that she could do a better job of writing in her voice. That's mm-hmm. what's the, the main idea. And when she go uh, before she goes up there, she's doing this research on Verity and she finds out they've had this couple has had, you know, they have three kids, but the two twin daughters, both the daughters, are dead. Oh, okay. And, you know, it's like, huh, that's kind of strange and whatever. So Lowen moves up there. She's living in the home. She's going into Verity's office. She's reading her notes and all of this. And she's developing a relationship with the husband. And she finds in a drawer this autobiography autobiography like Mm -hmm. manuscript Mm -hmm. that Verity has written and she starts reading it and that gives her this understanding you know really deep understanding of who Verity is okay and that's where all the twisted stuff starts coming into play okay and and I, I and this one too you know like I can't say any more anything too much more without giving any plot points away and that would ruin it. And (laughs) listeners, if you're interested in reading this book, it's crazy and you're in for a wild ride and it was great. I finished it in two days. (laughs) Well, I'm adding it to my list right now as you were typing that. So let me ask you this is this autobiography is unpublished. She obviously, I guess she doesn't want people to publish it yet or something, but, um, 
is it really just her inner thoughts that she's not expressing to the people around her or does it involve like her husband or her twin daughters? It's all about her relationship with her husband and her daughters and what happened, you know, what happened to them and the, the daughters who both passed away, the twins, Mm -hmm. they each, they didn't die at the same time. So one, one died in, in a very particular way. Okay. And then like six months later, the other one died in a oh. very, very different way. Oh, and, okay. um, and then there's still, the son is still left now. And one thing I didn't say is that, you know, Loan has moved into this home. Well, in the upstairs in the, the master bedroom, Verity is there. Oh, she, right. She's like incapacitated and she has a nurse that comes and takes care of her every day. So she's like still alive and she's there, but she, she's not able to communicate. So she's present. So she's present though. And then there, you know, there's some stuff that goes on there. And the other thing that I will say is the children have some names. I've, some of them I've never heard before. Chastin and Harper are the twin daughters. Like those are interesting names. And then the, Son's name is Crew. Sounds very Ivy League. It's very, yeah, it's very like, <laughs> East Coast. But, um, well, it sounds good. But it was, it was really good, and I loved it. And uh, you know, you know how I am. I'm always like critical of the endings. Mm-hmm. Like I was fine with this one. <laughs> <laughs> You know, um, so I've added that one to my list. I want to go back to the beginning of this, though, because yeah. you referenced Book Talk or TikTok. Yes. We yeah. should just do an episode about Book Talk, like the TikTok Book Talk phenomenon, yes. because mm-hmm. you just said this TikTok pushed this book back out into the world again mm-hmm. five years after it was published. And another book this happened with was. Um, Adam Silvera's They Both Die at the End, which was first published in like 2017, 2018. And someone book talked it like six months ago mm-hmm. and it suddenly hit the bestseller list again. So book talk is pushing readers, man. It, it, it really is. And it's one of my favorite things to watch. You know, I have very, I have very limited TikTok t- taste. Very limited in what I'll spend my, you know, one to three minutes on. Um, you know, because I'm so busy. (laughs) I love that. That's how we control our lifespans and little chunks of three minutes that are very valuable. I love it. It's, it's, well, you know, what's scary is that when you can't even sit through a three minute TikTok, you know, and like, no, no time. Swipe, swipe. I love it. Yeah. I'm, I'm seriously worried about my attention span at this point, but. Uh, yeah, I mean, there are, and it's so varied. I mean, everybody from teenagers to, you know, bookstore owners, right. and every, you know, and teachers and everything in between. And I've, I've gotten so many titles like, you know, that, oh, wow, that looks really good. And sometimes I get mad at myself because I see, I, you know, see somebody talking about a book that looks really good and I don't write the name down right then. Mm-hmm. And then I can't, can't remember, remember it. it later on, but because your um, attention span is only one minute long. Yeah, exactly. 
Yeah. Well, we'll do another episode on that then. I'm, I'm just going to have to start paying attention to it. It would be fun. But so those were, so again, my books were The Club by Ellery Lloyd and Verity by Colleen Hoover. And Christopher, repeat yours one more time. Time is a Mother by Ocean Vuong and Deaf Utopia, a memoir and a love letter to a way of life by Niall DiMarco. Great. So listeners, maybe you'll check those out or if you're on Book Talk. Let us know what books you're reading and what you think of poetry. We'd love to hear that. (laughs) We'll be right back. You're dialed in to Oxygen Starved, the podcast that brings you your ABCs, adventure, books, and conversations from 11,000 feet, originating from the slopes of Mammoth Mountain in Mono County, California. You can find us at SoundCloud. You can find us on iTunes. You can find us at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. Just make sure you find us. And hey, listeners, welcome back to our conversation portion of the podcast, the C part of the ABCs, where we bring you a unique individual or organization who contributes um, creatively to our live-work lifestyle, live-work-play lifestyle, I should say, in the Eastern Sierra. And today we are really pleased and honored to have with us the executive director of the Friends of the Inyo, Wendy Schneider. Welcome, Wendy. Hi, Wendy. Hello. Thanks for having me. (laughs) <laughs> we're glad you're here. Yeah, we're glad you could make time, especially at this time of year where there must be some stuff going on with Friends of the Inyo. It's, things are opening up, the trails are opening up, and the backcountry is opening up soon. So um, we'd love to hear more about it. But let's start with you. Uh, can you tell us a little bit more about your background and how you ended up in the Eastern Sierra? Are you from here or did you move here or how'd that happen? Yeah, um, gladly. So I'm actually from East Tennessee originally. And um, when I was a young person and I was working in Washington, D.C., doing some political work there, um, I got an opportunity to come out west and run a telephone outreach project for an environmental group. Surprise, surprise. Um, At that time, it was called CalPERG, but it's now called Environment California. So I ran a fundraising office for them and I started going up to the Eastern Sierra. Um, You know, I, I was from, you know, west of the Mississippi, I'm sorry, east of the Mississippi. And I had never seen like, you know, big mountains and like, you know, that kind of terrain before. But that's when I started in in 1990, that would have been sort of regularly coming up to the eastern Sierra. So fast forward many years later, I um, I decided to go to law school, I end up practicing law for 25 years, I get married, I have children, and my husband and I decide that we are both working quite a bit remotely. And that we don't really want to live in Los Angeles anymore. So we moved to Mammoth, which um, is where we really had our courtship and romance going up to Mammoth, you know, in the summer and in the winter to hike and backpack and ski. So we moved up and we rented a house in Old Mammoth. And that's how I came to the area. We were only going to stay for one year. I think a lot of have this story, and we're on year nine now, so we're still here. Um, I have <laughs> all three of my kids are going to, you know, go to high school at Mammoth High School. I have one that's now studying engineering in San Luis Obispo, and the other two are still in high school here. So, and um, I guess this is kind of one of those like kind of stage of life coming of age stories, but I was um, turning 50 and I had made a kind of commitment to myself that when I turned 60, I was going to be really proud 
of what I had done for the last 10 years. And so mm-hmm. I kind of formed that intention. And I um, ended up on a backcountry ski tour with a person who was at that time the communications director for Friends of the Indio. And he said, hey, R.E.D. is leaving. She's taken another opportunity. And um, she is now actually E.D. of Disabled Sports. And um, <laughs> I thought about it for some, and I decided that my relevant experience was too old and they would never hire me. And, you know, they certainly weren't looking for a burned out lawyer, you know, but I decided to apply anyway and, and they hired me. So, and I've been, that was about, uh, five years ago and I am just really having a great time being executive director of Friends of the Inyo. That's awesome. You haven't looked back then. Not at all. I don't miss practicing law at all. Um, I, I'm, I yeah, really, really love being part of protecting and caring for these beautiful lands in the Eastern Sierra. I think your story of saying you're going to, with your husband, to move up here for one year and now you're, it's nine years, that is, that resonates so much. My husband and I, when we came up here, we said, okay, three years and we're here 20. So, you know, I, I think that's a common theme amongst transplants to the Eastern Sierra. <laughs> It's a special place. It grabs you and it holds on to you longer than you may expect. And that's all for the good, mostly, I hope. So, well, that's wonderful. Well, you, we have mentioned, you mentioned the Friends of the Inyo. Can you tell our listeners a little bit more about the organization and what it does? Yes, absolutely. So Friends of the Inyo, uh, we are actually were founded way back in 1986. And it was originally just a group of volunteers who wanted to engage in coming up with a management plan for the Inyo National Forest that was more conservation focused. So it was just a bunch of volunteers getting together. And um, that was actually the penultimate uh, management plan. We just finished uh, with another one about three years ago. But over the years, it turned out that um, there were were lots of issues that needed addressing with respect to the management of the forest going forward, and um, and the supporters of the original Friends of the Inyo, you know, were interested mm-hmm. in continuing that support. So the group just can, continued to get support, and it was able to hire um, an executive director. That was Paul McFarland was our first. Mm-hmm. EP. You know, it was a volunteer organization for about 10 years, and then Paul became the first employee and the first staff person, the first executive director. And um, our mission is to protect and care for the lands of the Eastern Sierra. Pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Um, Friends of the Inyo, which referred to the Inyo National Forest, is a, is a pretty big misnomer at this point because we work on three national forests and two BLM field offices. We look after the land from Lone Pine to Bridgeport on both sides of the 395 and do all of the things that a full-service environmental group does. You know, um, as you alluded to before, we have a very active stewardship program um, that you'll see us out on the trails in the summer months for sure. Uh, we teach Leave No Trace, and we also help the Forest Service just do basic maintenance, um, everything from, you know, uh, repairing stairs and removing illegal fire rings to just plain old picking up trash and talking to people. So we do we do stewardship work, you know, for sure. And then we also do policy work, which is focused on making sure that we have, you know, conservation focused management of our lands, um, fighting inappropriate development. Um, we're, we're fighting for our water um, you know, right now, just uh, whatever issues come up that could affect the health of the land and the ecosystems here, we get involved in. 
You know, that's a, that's, that's a big remit in our area, right? Because you referred Lone Pine to Bridgeport, for our listeners who may not be familiar, is a, is a very big distance, um, especially if you're covering both sides of, of 395. So let me ask you a very basic question that some of our listeners may not understand. You know, I've certainly benefited from your work. I love going on a hike and then, oh, yeah, thank God there are stairs here, right? <laughs> you know, out in the backcountry to help me get over this rock fall or what have you. Can you tell us why um, that isn't just the Forest Service doing that work? I mean, it's Forest yeah. Service land, so. It is Forest Service land or Bureau of Land Management land. We mm-hmm. also do stewardship there. And mm-hmm. the, the answer is really simple. The Forest Service is really starved for resources. They are just not able with the resources they get from our federal government to do enough to take mm. really good care of these lands. So, and I, I want to make it clear that we work in partnership with the Forest Service and BLM. We don't just go out and, um, you know, do whatever we want to do. We right. form a program, you know, we form a plan of work for the season in partnership with these agencies so that we are just assisting them with the work that they know needs to be done. And and when we see issues or problems, we'll certainly bring them to their attention. But, um, you know, we work in close partnership with the agencies. And so, how, oh, go oh, ahead, Says. Well, I'm, I'm curious to know, it given what you just explained that during the pandemic did was your workload i mean technically the forests were closed but we all know we had lots of people coming up here to you know to get away so i'm curious was your workload increased during the pandemic because maybe the the federal employees weren't as available um, our workload definitely increased during the pandemic um, for a number of reasons. So when the forest closed, which we've also had to close the forest for fire danger, right? right? Mm-hmm. We help the forest close the fire. We help forest close it down. You know, we go out and we help put up signs and redirect people and, you know, try to just assist in any way. Um, we also use the opportunity of, for the pandemic closure and sometimes to a more limited extent for the fire closures to get some work done. That's hard to get done when, you know, it's just overrun with people. But again, in very close collaboration, you know, with the agencies. Um, But, you know, over the past two summers, as I'm sure you're both aware, the just a number of visitors was just overwhelming. And also lots of visitors who had not recreated in this way before. Um, The increased trash was something we definitely helped address and just, you know, help helping to educate people about how you recreate responsibly, how you behave on public lands. How many people do you have on staff at Friends of the Inuit? I imagine you must staff up during some times of the year and staff down and rely on volunteers for certain kinds of activities. Yeah, we have, um, right now we have... (laughs) Six, seven. We have seven, <laughs> and um, and then we're going to hire four or five people or four and a half people for you know to beef up for the summer stewardship. But we've actually expanded our stewardship um, into the fall and sometimes the spring. Uh, we work in Death Valley to help with uh, the remediation of vehicle trespass. So um, working in Death Valley in the high summer is not ideal. So we do high altitude stuff in the high summer, and then you know when the weather's a little cooler, uh, sometimes we work for the park. And so we're able to keep our, you know, our kind of seasonal staff on for longer. So, and real quickly, so vehicle trespass means people have taken their Jeeps or whatever off a a regular road and have damaged uh, some landscape there that needs repair. Is that, that what you mean? 
That is correct. But I will just, I just want to say that I'm not necessarily talking about OHV trespass right. here. I'm just talking about regular vehicle trespass, like people right. just taking their cars and driving them on the playa, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. You know, we work a lot with the OHV community and we've certainly made a lot of efforts in the last five years to have a better relationship with that community. And I think that we do. And, you know, most people who are involved in off-highway vehicle recreation do it responsibly. They stay on the legal roads and trails. But yeah, sometimes you get people that don't but yeah in death valley i guess because it's accessible or it seems accessible um a lot of people just drive regular cars on the playa (laughs) and it's hard to get the cars off of the playa without damaging it more right 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 people just wouldn't necessarily think of that i think um well i'm going to just mention that i you know when we first moved back to the area four years ago friends of the inyo was one of the first high hikes that we ever did you know wills had never been here and so we went up to convict lake and you know it was a friends of the inyo trail ambassador who took us around the lake who i later hired for the library and ever since then there was a key moment on that walk wendy where she pointed out you know the ponderosa pine and if you stick your nose up to it it smells like butterscotch and so now wills sticks his nose in pine trees wherever we hike looking for ponderosa pine so you know listeners if you're coming up here to recreate if you partake of one of these walks or um if you follow friends of the inyo online and see you know like there's a river cleanup event or something like that that you can volunteer for it's really easy to 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 benefit from some of the work that you guys do you seem to be doing quite a bit yeah we certainly are and um, you know you, you know you can just go to our website friendsoftheinyo.org and you will see you know all of the events uh, that we are doing um we just finished our Owens Lake Bird Festival which came back live this year after 2 years of it not being there and it is a celebration of wildlife in southern inyo county um you know that that's an event that we we feel like really we and we do parts of it in the schools also you know it really celebrates the the return of all of the migratory birds you know to that part of southern inyo county which wasn't happening for many decades you know when the lake was drained but yeah we lead um wildflower walks and you know geology walks and you know the our trail ambassadors each one of them will put together a special walk you know and we let them just you know whatever you want to talk about geology or wildlife or whatever and i don't even know what they're going to do this year so we just hired our group <laughs> and they will be coming up with their walks and they lead them two or three times a week um in their area we have a trail ambassador like you know one in whitney portal one in the bishop area one in the mammoth area one on the humboldt toyabe and yeah you can just check the website and see what kind of fun stuff they're going to be talking about this summer so to be a trail ambassador are those volunteers how do the, how does somebody get involved in doing that Oh, no, they're not volunteers. They are paid staff. So we we fly positions. We have to raise money, you know, and we raise our stewardship director raises a little over $100,000 every year so that we can hire this crew to help the Forest Mm -hmm. Service and to help people connect with how special our public lands are. And yeah, and we pay them. uh, I think we pay them pretty well, you know, seasonally, and we hire special people. It's it's not an easy job. Like, you have to be able to deal with the public, right, and take people out on these walks and talk about, you know, these areas. But you also have to be able to, like, carry a 50-pound backpack, you know, for hours and hours um, into the backcountry. And then fill it up with trash and bring it out. So um, unfortunately, or, or I'm sorry, fortunately, there is no shortage of badasses in the Eastern Sierra who can do all of this stuff. 
I will also mention the last one we went on was just around the Lakes Basin last year. We were just trying to get out of the heat one day, and so we we had a delightful walk with one of your trail ambassadors. And one of the outcomes was that we met a lot of our own neighbors from the Owens Valley who were also escaping the heat that day. It was a terrific little <laughs> social event for the morning. We had a great time. Um, can I ask you one one other question? That I've always been curious about is is Friends of the Inyo unique in this type of organization that kind of partners with the BLM and the Forest Service? Or are there other organizations around the West that are analogous to what you guys do? Oh yes, lots of them. You know, there are lots of organizations like Friends of the Inyo uh, all around the American West that are doing really important work, um, bringing parties together. And like the the unique niche that Friends of the Inyo occupies in the Eastern Sierra is that we are really the local kind of on the ground, full service environmental organization. But I will say that our effectiveness is due in large part to our work in coalition. Like we work with other local nonprofits, and we also work with big national groups. And that gives us access to expertise and resources. Like if we're talking about going up against a company that's trying to tear up our lands to make a gold mine, we need that kind of like expertise and resources from our big national group partners. And then, you know, we also generate local support for our work by partnering with, you know, everybody from the tribes to the ranchers, to the, you know, people seeking conservation easements, you know, all of the other kind of local groups we form partnerships with too. And our mantra is definitely stronger together. And we try to align interests and find common ground where we can. Yeah, that's so important. And I I bet a lot of our listeners, Stace, wouldn't realize that, you know, mining isn't still an issue in this part of the country and responsible mining as well. And there have been some, there are still some, some issues with, um, gold mines coming in recently. Um, (laughs) <laughs> that that need addressing. So it's it's and, and there's friends of the Inyo front and center right along with Sierra Club and others doing some some advocacy work around that. So that's really great. Yeah. So Wendy, we've talked a lot about what Friends of the Inyo does, which sounds like an eighty hour work week for you, um, <laughs> even with your kids. What do you guys do when you're not working for Friends of the Inyo? What do you do to kind of relax and enjoy the area? Yeah, I'm, I am definitely um, an outdoor recreation enthusiast, which is one reason, you know, that, that we came here. Um, I, I do a lot of backcountry skiing. Um, I would say that that's my, like, number one thing that I do in the winter. I also ski alpine on the mountain, and I do uh, cross-country also. I've got, like, a lot of people here in my old quiver of skis. And <laughs> you know, in, in the warmer months, um, I love hiking and backpacking, and I also do some rock climbing. Um uh, but kind of more, uh, I really love kind of like lower grade, like kind of five, six, five, seven, five, eight for rock climbers, you know, Alpine multi-pitch stuff. Um, as opposed to like all of that, like five thirteen in the gorge. Yeah. Those are the things that I do recreationally. And uh, my husband is a huge golf enthusiast. So we kind of like go different directions there. And, uh, my daughter, uh, uh for her part, the soccer and volleyball, you know, not, not really into like the mountain stuff too much, but, uh, yeah. And my sons are both skiers, but not really back country. They like those, they like those ski lifts. <laughs> Was it an adjustment for them moving up from the LA area for your kids or do they assimilate into all the, had you been coming up here with them, you know, before you moved here or, Oh, yes. We had been coming up before we moved. So, yeah, they were, you know, they were younger then. I think my oldest was 
11 when we moved up. So it was very easy for them to, uh, you know, assimilate. And um, I remember my oldest saying to me once, wow, mom, my life is so much cooler than my friends back in LA. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That's great. Yeah, so do you have a, when, go ahead. I was just going to say that was uh, shortly after he had just taken up dirt biking, which he's a big <laughs> dirt biker. And, and yeah, there's um, right. None of his friends were doing any dirt biking. He has this big, scary dirt bike, um, which I've never <laughs> ridden, but that's, that's, you know, become his favorite activity. That's awesome. <laughs> it's great when they find something they can own and be passionate about for sure. Um, so are, do you have any favorite we're coming up on the hiking season, prime hiking season? Do you have any favorite hikes that you like to do? Yeah, you know, absolutely. Um, you know, if I'm going to stay around, I live in Crowley. So if I'm going to stay around near my house, I, I really love Convict Canyon and I really love mm-hmm. McGee Canyon, like just like right in my yeah. uh, backyard, you know, like if I'm just going to take a hike, um, take my dogs out, like that's where I go. It's so nice to be able to walk. I live in Crowley too. And it's so nice to be able to walk out your front door and it's all there. It's right there at yeah. your feet. Yeah. So super short drive. Cool. But yeah, I've done lots of hiking, you know, uh, all over the place and, and skiing and stuff. And, and it's all great, but you know, I like my, I like my backyard. <laughs> <laughs> it's a big backyard. Um, well let's shift gears, Wendy. So we always ask each of our guests, uh, uh, if they have a book that they're reading right now that they'd like to share with our listeners, because we are after all a book podcast, I'm a librarian and Stacy's the head of education. So um, is there, is there a book you'd like to share with our listeners? So I have been um, reading two books right now. Um, one of them, Crazy Brave by Joy Harjo, and then um, and a set of poetry that she edited called Living Nations, Living Words. And, um, you know, I guess kind of inspired by my work, I'm really trying to educate myself about Native people, Native communities in California and all over the American West. And Friends of the Inyo is working toward achieving permanent protections um, in, in two places, one up in the Bodie Hills and one down on Conglomerate Mesa in Southern Inyo County. And we're working very closely with the tribes in, in both cases to make sure that their priorities, their agendas you know, are front and center in these efforts. And I am making an effort to educate myself about the history and culture of these people that we're working with and, and, and just the history and culture of native people in the American West in general. So tell us a little more about crazy brave. Is it a biography? It's an autobiography. Yeah. And, you know, super interesting story, you know, not only about a native person, but a woman, you know, so it's Mm -hmm. interesting to me in that sense. And she's an artist, which I am not. So, you know, (laughs) it's not, it's just not, you know, some of the the things that she's gone through, you know, have been really interesting, you know, to me, but she's been very successful too. you know, overcame a lot and um, is now engaged in work that she's passionate about, you know, which is all something Mm -hmm. everybody looks, looks for, you know, it's a great story. I'm a big fan of Joy Harjo, and and I may have talked about her previously on the podcast days in one of our poetry episodes. She's currently mm-hmm. Poet Laureate of the United States. She's the first Indigenous Tribal Poet Laureate of the United States, which I think is mm-hmm. such a great representation. And she's worked really hard to extend that voice out into the tribes across the country and really elevate 
that that narrative. And her most recent book is American Sunrise, which we have at the library. And um, I'm glad to hear you're reading her because I, you know, whenever she gives an online talk, which she often does with the Library of Congress, I always zoom in and listen to her. She's <laughs> such a great speaker. It's awesome. That's wonderful. I, that. I, I will look for that. Um, I'm sure I could find some recordings. Yeah, you will. Well, thank you, Wendy, for joining us yeah. today. We've really enjoyed speaking with you and learning more about the Friends of the Inyo. And thank you so much for all you're doing to keep our trails open for hiking on <laughs> and playing on. Absolutely. We will put uh, the links to the Friends of the Inyo uh, contact information on our show page as well as Instagram when we this episode goes live. So listeners, you can find out more about the organization, including if you want to support it or volunteer. Um, there's a lot of opportunity there for you to learn a little bit more. And again, my thanks as well, Wendy. We appreciate you taking time for us. Hey, thanks for having me. I appreciate it. And thank you, listeners, for joining us again for this episode of the Oxygen Star podcast. Please remember to check out our Instagram page at O2Starved and our website at OxygenStarvedPodcast.com. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, take care, be safe, enjoy the lovely weather wherever you are, and we will see you soon. Thanks for joining us here for Oxygen Star. Our outro music, Iron Bacon, is composed and performed by Kevin McLeod. Incompetech.com, Creative Commons by Attribution 3.0 license.